Cradleine Network. Where two Americans patrol their way through the Judge Dread magazine. Um, and this episode, we're talking about the Judge Dread magazine, volume two, issues five and six. Cover dates June 27th or and uh, July 11th, 1992. This episode will continue on through Judgment Day. The Soul Sisters meet the Pope. Devlin Waugh uh, Wa gets into deep water. And the bad man goes to the UN. All right. And if you would read along with us, you find the comics we're covering today in Judge Dredd, the Complete Case Files 17, Devlin Waugh Swimming in Blood, and the Judge Dredd Magazine Issue 300. How you doing this week, Eli? How you feeling? I'm doing great. Um, just kind nice. of snow for my first time, so that's been uh, new. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely um, making our way through some pretty strange territory these days. I know, um, like these comics are making. I like a couple of these comics are ones where I have trouble kind of figuring out exactly what's going on all the time. So it's a, <laughs> a challenge for sure. Right. And speaking of unusual challenges, let's get started with Story One, Judgment Day. Script robot Garth Ennis, art robot Carlos Escara, and Dean Ornstrom, letting robot Tom Frame. All right. Back in the Judgment Zone with Team Fox, Eli, and Conrad. Team Feck. All right. <laughs> And in between sessions in the Judgment Zone, Eli, you were talking about um, how you, or we were all talking about how we liked it or how, how we're feeling about these uh, the changes in artists as we go through the um, through the storyline here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, I now have a new appreciation for each of these artists because I have uh, like a, a tie to their previous work. So I'm seeing this at what we're about to go into. I'm remembering um, Al's baby. And I have like, oh yeah, yeah, that was that was some good stuff. Uh, and then you get into more appreciation for like uh, the artists they selected for which part. Like, uh, if there's a particular yeah, scene going seeing, on, absolutely. Yeah, we're definitely seeing a lot of uh, of a magazine artist, especially in the course of this special. Uh, Pete Doherty last time did um, the Young Death story, and also did that recent um, one where Dread had to solve the murder mystery in space in 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 the Prague's Fox. Oh, yeah. Like that, he's. He's that artist. And then Dean Ornstrom's been doing just a ton of Dread stuff in the magazine as well. So he, and he's very much the uh, the main guy for the magazine portions of this adventure. And then, yeah, I know, Eli, you've seen a scared Owl's Baby and maybe one or two other things. And, of course, he's an old old friend, the originator of Judge Dredd um, over in the Progs, definitely. Fun to see how, how they use these different artists. I, think- I, I still love that he's still bringing his, like, rounded box shapes to the whole thing. You know what I mean? Tiles. Definitely. Yeah, and you get that like jagged um outline of dread and stuff. Mm. I think that's such a, a key part of the Ascara look. And I also think or, both um or, or, Ormstrun and um and Doherty are really great for drawing crazy zombies. Like that's sort of that, that that's a solid work for them. 
<laughs> yeah. So a scare, yeah. So a, a scare takes over on art here. Love to see him. It's been a year since he's done any dread work. Been doing a lot of stuff in the magazine between Al's Baby and now Armageddon, the Bad Man in the magazine as well. Uh, the cursed earth is silent as thousands, millions of corpses come to life, crawl from their graves and towards the mega cities. Meanwhile, Judge, Judges Dredd and Perrier are riding hard toward Mega City Ones with a hot dog run of cadets, taking out the occasional zombie when they can, targets of opportunity. Dredd's doing some sweet clothesline moves as he sort of powers through on his lawmaster and stuff, just popping these zombies' heads off. It's excellent. I, I really feel like it's just so gratuitous. He didn't need to, but he does anyway. Right. You might as, you know, wh- while you're here, you might as well kill a zombie. Right. You know? <laughs> Um, they arrive on a cliff outside the city where an untold number of corpses stand between them and home. The H-Wagon still can't fly out of the city. Um, they'll have to go in the hard way, but Dread promises the cadets none of them will die tonight. Yeah, that's a, that's a fib. Right, that's a tall I mean, order. One of those, one of those, um, Obi-Wan Kenobi's from a certain point of view kind of situation. <laughs> 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 Below ground, Sabat talks to the whispering Man. faces on his cloak. Okay, I need to say this. As soon as that cloak started talking, it both got more gross and more awesome at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. There's all these faces and they're clearly like, they clearly like just sort of like like pick at him and like, you know, call him a jerk and stuff, which I guess, I guess it's fair. Like if you turn me into a face on your cloak, I'm going to call you a jerk as well. Right. <laughs> it's hard to blame them. Every opportunity. He sees that that, uh, Johnny Alpha has arrived and wasn't counting on a strontium dog coming after him. But in the end, Alpha will die like the rest. The faces call him smug. He agrees. He's going to (laughs) win. Up at Mega City 1, it's time to go. The judges power up their bikes and start blasting through the masses of zombies. As they approach the walls, the guns of the city open up, cutting a pass for them. A hundred meters out, Cadet Eckerson, who we also saw during Necropolis, gets tackled by a zombie, but Dread shoots her free. The cadets are through, but Dread looks back and sees Perrier swarmed by the undead. And she sort of ruefully thinks, like, ah, Dread didn't promise that she'd survive. Whoa. <laughs> We see her being dragged down and chewed up by the zombies. She punches through the chest of one last one, and then she dies. Dread cries out. He starts blasting the zombies. You scum! But then eventually shoots his way into the city. The chief judge wants to see him, and he says they'll have to napalm half the cursed earth to take out these zombies. When another judge tells him the whole damn planet's covered in them. <laughs> it's a lot of zombo. It's a lot of zombamans, you know? You gotta be careful. In Mega City 1, an unwashed madman preaches to the masses, prophesying the doom of the city when Judge Hershey shows up and gives him a good clubbing, then arrests him. (laughs) Control calls her. Chief Judge Magruder wants all senior judges at the Grand Hall for a meeting. And so she rides off. We learn that this doomsayer has been uh, tied up to a catch post in uh, Ike Plaza, presumably for the lizard-loving conspiracy theorist David Ike. Oh. At the uh, – listen. Yeah, tying it all back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
At the meeting, Magruder wants to know what's going on, and neither Judge Schenker from Psy Division or Judge Oppenheimer from Tech Division have any real information. They can rule out the dark judges, but, like, we see um, a zombie in, like, one of these, like, uh, Tech Division interrogation chairs, and they're just not getting anything from it, basically. I don't know what's making these zombies live and move around. It's a bad time. I do like the idea of, I guess, just dissecting a zombie. Right. How do you check? Yeah. I like the idea of them interrogating them. around. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, definitely. Zombies, zombies, I ain't telling you nothing. Right. And then they, uh, ah, damn it. (laughs) This guy doesn't even have a jaw. He can't say anything. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) This guy's tough. Bring out the truth serums. (laughs) Oh, my God. It'll just go through my veins. They're already gone. Oh, no. He's taunting us. (laughs) Uh, Dread reports seeing that weird light, that weird light, like blue lightning at the NC station. And there's theories that it could be related, that thus the zombies could be related to the H-Wagon problems. It seems like the zombies don't actually have much awareness around them, like something's controlling them, I guess. Um, And we talked to then Judge Floyd, who's in charge of the wall. There's a million zombies and the wall has um, still has some damage left over from Necropolis. But he reckons that with judge reinforcements and stuff, they can hold the wall against attack. Though right now the zombies aren't actually doing anything. They're just sort of standing there. Underground Sabat has found some kind of big crystal stalagmite kind of thing. Yeah. And starts monologuing about ultimate power until his cloaks call him a a loud mouth. But it's too late! (laughs) Lightning bursts from the crystal as Sabat orders the zombies to smash the walls of the megacities to kill the world. It's pretty... It is a... It's a good command, but a vague one, you know? Yeah. A lot of, like, plants and stuff. Also a real ripoff from... uh, from uh, Death Aid, like last oh, year yeah. or whatever, the Necropolis, where we had to kill the world to the tune of feed the world, you know. Kill the world. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> gotta get at least one song in here. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll we, got, we got a couple, my man. Yeah. All right. So, um... <laughs> On the wall, Dredd looks out over the zombies, nervous about what to come, what's to come, when he realizes that they've made a key error. Because sure, it looks like there's a million zombies out there, but that's not counting the six million bodies in the necropolis mass <laughs> graves scattered along the outside of Mega City One, which are all now bursting open and spewing forth masses of zombies. It's tough overturning those giant cross tombstones and stuff like that. Yeah, oh, no. Uh, well, wouldn't I mean you're, you're kind of risking your zombies at that point? They get smashed. Right. I feel like I feel like you know Sabat's got that. Um, he's got the he's doing the attrition warfare. You know, it doesn't really matter if any one yeah, cluster of zombies gets killed. Like there's 60 million coming towards Mega City One. That's a lot. You know. Right. They also surely <laughs> bury their dead deeper. I mean, is it supposed to be six feet so that the zombies can't get out or? Oh, that's something else. Well, I mean, I mean, I'm sure the guys at the bottom of the mass grave are even deeper than six feet, but you know, right, they have to true. do it fast. There's a lot of bodies. Right, yeah, Recite right. couldn't handle it, you know. Right. So, I hope someone <laughs> I brought know. that up, and then they were like, "What's the worst that can happen? Why are you freaking out about it?" <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, then- <laughs> certainly, certainly, a big point to be made when they clean up after Judgment Day. Right. I, I do <laughs> like. I do like the idea of us burying bodies six feet down because. <laughs> That's <laughs> our protection against zombies. I right. really hope I think, that that's the truth. 
I think, I believe I am adding a little bit more mythos to it. I believe it's actually six feet down so that, like, uh, like people can't get to the bodies or, like, animals yeah, don't dig up these these bodies or something. I forgot. Yeah. More for their protection, I think you're right. Yes, yeah, it's, it's to it's to keep – it's that nobody can just sort of idly get to get to one of the corpses. You got to like, you know, spend some serious time digging and stuff. Or like if there's an earthquake or a flood that the mm. – like a coffin isn't just sort of pop out of the ground or something because that's disturbing. No one likes uh, that. Uh, oh, there was also another weird graveyard thing that I heard about, which was uh, they used to mm. bury uh, n- uh, royalty or nobles with bells so that if they turned out they oh. weren't dead, they'd ring this bell. And then the gravekeeper would just keep an eye out for a bell. And then if there was a bell ringing somewhere, Whoa. would go dig that person up. Oh, you weren't dead. Our bad. And then they would. That's what creepy. The hell? <laughs> it is weird. I don't know what they were, the autopsy was about, but apparently they just, that well, I, was I a problem they were worried was, about. Yeah. Yeah, you got to I mean, imagine there was at least one person and that became the thing after that. <laughs> <laughs> I I think it is a big worry in like Victorian times or something that you'd be buried alive. Very good, like early ghost story kind of fodder. Nowadays, I mean, that's I, I feel like that 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 that's part of why they embalm you. It's right. just like you <laughs> make know, sure this guy definitely isn't like if he was <laughs> if he was alive before. He's not now because we sort of <laughs> you know swapped out his blood for weird juice. So whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I played Graveyard Keeper. I know how this works. Right. Yeah, come on. You know, you got to take out those soft uh, soft organs or whatever, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> don't take off the skin because people don't like that. Um. Anyway, right. <laughs> Graveyard Keeper jokes. We're back in the mm-hmm. magazine. Dean, on, Dean Orm, Ormston's on art as 60 million zombies approach the mega city walls and the judges open fire. Uh, Dread calls for everybody to just keep shooting. We got to stop them at the wall or the city's lost. And the front is a thousand miles long. What hope do they have against the tides of the undead? The scene's the same across Dread World. We see Texas City, Mega City 2, Ciudad Barranquilla, the Sydney Melbourne Conurb, where Judge Bruce is fighting zombies, uh, Sinocit... Sino City 1, East Meg 2, where Judge Briel Cream from the uh, Clockwork Pineapple story shows oh, yeah. up. Uh, <laughs> Brit Sit with the star-chinned Judge Armor. Murphyville, where Judge Joyce calls in an airstrike. And Hondo City, where Johnny Alpha's getting pretty tired of dealing with this Sadu guy. So instead, he uses a, time, a, a minimum setting time bomb just sort of warped elsewhere in the city, like three seconds away. Yeah, that's a pretty common Johnny Alpha thing. They have the he has these time this time Man, weaponry. It's so rad. Yeah, a, a standard one is a time grenade, which sort of warps you and the and, your, and the surrounding area a few hours into the past, or, oh, okay. or either the past or the future. Okay, but basically, it warps you. It moves you through time, but not through space. Mm. So when you blink back to it ex- to to into existence, the Earth is like moved. Right. Right. From where it was before, so suddenly you just get warped like into deep space where you asphyxiate, basically. That's so fun that they kept the time-space continuum in consideration. Usually whenever people do time travel, it's always just the time. They don't like actually calculate how difficult it is to actually – <laughs> uh, move through the fabric. Absolutely. So, I, yeah, I really appreciate that's what, that. In, in Stranium Dog, there are sort of like time centers or something. That's like what Sabat used, which also sort of can move you through space, it seems like. So, that allows for 
actual time travel, mm-hmm. but generally in Strontium Dog, time travel is just a weird way to kill somebody. Right. Yeah. <laughs> flare points. Uh, yeah, he, you, he once trapped his. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, just you killing people with flare. That's really what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. He, his <laughs> father was uh, was a new aged Hitler, and part of his punishment anti mutant Hitler. Yeah, yeah. anti mutant Hitler. Excuse me. Um, and uh, the way that he imprisoned his father was he trapped him in a time loop that he was constantly in agony for every for three seconds, and then warped back to the beginning of that agony. Yeah, like on like like a gif, like on constant repeat, basically. <laughs> And they've also got deals that can, like, de-time people to, like, bring a dead person back to life, though doesn't, like, even if they've been brought back to life by this uh, device, they still often get killed anyway because death claims its own, you know? <laughs> but if you use a time grenade with, like, where you warp, like, three seconds, it'll just sort of warp you through space, you know, warp you to another part of the planet instead of, um, you know, into space and kill you, basically. Um, there's no time to, uh, to figure out what's going on, though, as Hondo is mobilizing its heavy armor as a wave of samurai-clad zombies attack the city. Meanwhile, Johnny materializes three seconds in Earth's past, where he promptly clothes lines a Hondo city judge and steals their bike, rides off with it. Reports are coming in. Um, the Hondo tanks are overwhelmed, and Inspector Sadu is presumed dead. Johnny has sharper eyes, though, spots Sadu. And shoots him free of the zombies attacking him. That buys him a bit of Sadu's trust for the moment, at least. But for now, there's a horde of zombies coming their way they gotta deal with. Back in the progs, as the judges open fire against a massive horde of zombies. I think this part's really cool. I really like to see all these uniformed judges fighting together and stuff. It's something we haven't really seen since the Apocalypse War, I guess. And Mm -hmm. I really love Ascara's art for this. Yeah, it's pretty great. Um, the action's hottest at the Sector 52 breach in the wall, a massive gap from Necropolis. Heavy guns are being set up as um, Dread arrives wielding a sweet Colt M2000 Widowmaker submachine gun shotgun. God, that <laughs> so many things in one gun. So, absolutely. <laughs> He's blowing away zombies and judges are holding the line as the sun rises. Below ground, Sabat is assembling the bones of a giant skeleton of some kind and using his dark magic to cover it in flesh. Back in Mega City 1, Chief Magruder's getting reports from all around the world. Most places are holding against the zombies, but they've lost contact with both Mega City 2 out on the West Coast. Oh, no. And uh, Sino Sit, which is uh, China. While Ciudad Berenquia, Banana City, seems to be in trouble. They're like, curse you, Mega City One! (laughs) Magruder's had enough and just decides to head down to the wall to deal with it herself. Noon comes and Dread still blasts in a way, um, taking out at least one zombie manually, you know, by just punching it punching it in his face (laughs) and it explodes once he runs out of ammo. All the judges are running dry and some of the barrels on these new guns are starting to overheat as well. Uh, Dread runs to grab ammo when the quick when the quickly repaired wall starts to give way and he's crushed beneath the rubble and the zombies are into the city. Uh, the judges are down to lawgivers as Dread crawls out of the rubble, few ribs broken. Ugh. He calls in some. Oh, what? Oh no, just gross. <laughs> Battle damage, buddy. He uh, calls in some Manta hover tanks with riot foam and has the other ju- um, all the other judges pull out. 
The mantas swoop in, drop in riot foam to seal the breach in the wall, which seems like it would have been a good opening yeah. move or whatever. <laughs> um, we'll just stand here, I guess, as opposed to imposing more barriers. But then they drop napalm on the zombies that got through the wall. And I really like sort of when you see Dread ordering all this, his helmet's kind of crumpled from getting hit by the, by the rubble and stuff. Right. And, I, you know. I also like that a lot of other judges lost their helmets in all this, but Judge, I guess Dredd just it never is really going to lose his helmet. <laughs> no, no, it's it's vacuum sealed on there. You know, right. like when you when he takes it off for the day, it makes like one of those like <laughs> like 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 that kind of sound yeah. when he pulls it off. Does, you know, does is there record of Judge of Dread taking off his helmet? Oh, sure. Okay, all yeah. right. It's like in shadows usually, or at the very least, yeah. everyone okay. who sees his face says it's right. disgusting. I mean, there are, and I feel like this is something that happens over time, where it becomes like some sort of weird thing where Dread refuses to take his helmet off at any time, basically. Right. But I feel like even in these days, like he kind of comes home and he'll take his helmet off or something. But, you know, while he's working, yeah. he keeps the helmet on because you got to protect your noggin, like a, you know? Like the Mandalorian, but not not as like dramatic, I guess. I would say he dreads less, even less attached to it than the than the Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. Like, as, as, especially at this point, I think if you held a gun to him and told him to take off his helmet, he wouldn't really mind doing I it, see. I guess. Mm-hmm. He'd probably break your arm for putting a point of gun. All type of violations. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. My- yeah, like, 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 like that would get you beaten up. <laughs> my, Absolutely. My, my question is, do you think he sees a shadow and is like, oh, this is a good place for me to take off my helmet? Like, it's way too convenient that there's always a shadow there. <laughs> I mean, I would say that the that the world of dread um, bends around I him see. to keep his face obscured okay. as much as possible. He's in the middle of a desert, also, and then the yeah. he takes helmet off. Shade just shows up. Exactly, it's and I think also like plot armor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally, pl- yeah, literal armor from the plot. <laughs> I think also he likes to keep it on because we learned um, pretty early in Dread's adventure that his face is actually horribly scarred, mm-hmm. like scarred enough that like like this was in like Prague six or something but his face was so scarred that he took his helmet off and he managed to beat a bunch of goons because they were so grossed out by his face basically <laughs> stuff um anyway right but yeah whatever he'll take it off when the situation calls for is what i'm trying to say um the the judges retake the foam wall as Dredd gets a situation report. Most of the sectors are at least starting to fall or under very heavy pressure. The main gate's almost almost um, um, lost the zombies. Dredd contacts that sector and gets our friend Judge Decker, who was a, was a rookie that Dredd took out on her first assignment. And who's actually been coming back once or twice in some, in some of his adventures since Garthanis has taken over. Um They've done all they can to seal the gate, but there's just too many of these damn zombies and backups too far away to help. Decker's overrun and out of ammo. All the other judges are getting killed around her. With no other choice, she pops a a frag grenade and says, See you on the streets, Joe, to Dread, and then her connection goes dark. She sacrificed himself, and Dread reflects, She was his best cadet, and now she's gone. A med tech tries to treat Joe's wounds, but he shrugs them off. Dread orders every inch of the wall rigged with just anything flammable, napalm, gasoline, explosives, and with some giant neck veins, he shouts, burn the wall. It's cool. I don't know. Right. No, it's I, serious I mean, neck I, veins. Neck? Yeah, no, I was about to say, <laughs> the, the saying maybe, but neck veins always like, it's like a gross look. 
<laughs> yeah, no, that's why you know he's intense, you know, absolutely. He's got to get real vascular, see these uh, blood vessels and so forth. <laughs> How else are they going to know they need to burn the wall? But they don't see the absolutely. next Absolutely true. Yeah, come on, he's serious. So we're back in the magazine now with Dean Ormstrom. Um, he's drawn Dread with kind of a cracked shoulder pad here, uh, some scars on his face, and then uh, a big bandolier of shells, and I guess this uh, shotgun thing over his shoulder. The, you know, one thing I, I will say is that these guns change size depending on who the artist is. It's, you know, <laughs> just it, you, you got to roll with it is the basic point. The judges are preparing to burn the wall as judges, as in Hondo, uh, judges and bounty hunter gun down zombies. As we learn that even more city of even more cities that have lost contact and are seemingly overrun. Johnny fires several number four cartridges Ooh. as Hondo City unleashes its screamer sonic cannon, which obliterate zombie and stray judge alike <laughs> at a massive cost of power. It's just this giant red like flashlight beam that just <laughs> obliterates anything it touches. It's pretty cool. <laughs> But we also see, like, Hondo City, just like this giant uh, mega city, just go dark because so much power is being sucked up by the uh, by the device. The Screamer can run for two days at a maximum, and so they're safe for now, but obviously there's a very real time limit on how long that'll be. Able to catch a breath, Johnny Alpha's finally um, able to explain this whole situation. And Inspector Sadu scoffs at the idea of a mutant bounty hunter from 60 years in the future. But it's, <laughs> his lie detector says it's true. So I don't know. I guess we got to give him some credit, I guess. Johnny explains just what Sabat is capable of, how he arrived on the paradise world of Bathsheba, home to palm trees and some sweet, tall Easter Island heads. And then the whole world was consumed by Sabat's zombies. Two million settlers became two million walking corpses. And when the Galactic Crime Commission realized that uh, Sabat was loading these zombies onto ships to take over the galaxy, they destroyed the planet with a bunch of core nukes, just sort of destroying it from the core out. But Sabat managed to escape, travel to the past, and now Alpha's here to take him out. He... Johnny Alpha finishes his story as a messenger comes. There's to be an international meeting of judges to deal with the problem. Johnny must attend because he's got information and it'll be in Hondo, so it's convenient. But is more than a little worried about a reunion with Judge Dredd. Oh, boy. I like I like their history here, at the very least. Yeah, we get flashes of it. Um, they, they met in the 1991 annual in a story called Top Dogs, which is a lot of fun. Um and basically featured Johnny and and Wolf going back in in disguises to uh, find a time fugitive and bring him back, and it led to Johnny and Wolf just having a huge melee in a mall in Mega City One. It was really awesome. But then um, Johnny and Wolf, jo- Johnny Wolf, and their target being able to uh, to time jump and escape Dreads uh, and escape capture from Dread just in time. So you know they've got unfinished business basically. <laughs> Next time, in the Judgment Zone, Pyromania Special, and The Reunion. That's where we'll finish up for this part of Judgment Day. Oh, man. With the apocalypse well underway there, let's start another apocalypse with Story 2, The Soul Sisters. Kind of a zombie apocalypse, I guess. I don't know. Uh, Well, (laughs) you've seen one, you've seen them all. 
I mean, they sort of add up, I guess. Skipped Robots, David Bishop and Dave Stone, Art Robot Shaky Kane, Letter Robot Ellie DeVille. So the Soul Sisters, Eli. They're trying to warn the authorities about the danger to Pope Bob II, but they should have called the new old Bailey instead of the local pizza place. So now there's only one choice. They'll have to handle it. To the Grudmobile! Which is, I guess, Grud is like a way of saying God in the future slang of Judge Dredd. Right. They they even have uh, sound effects for it. Uh, Donna, 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 Donna. (laughs) Well... no, it's like it's like the old Batman show. So it's like da 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 Soul Sisters. Oh, okay. Soul nice. Sisters. Da na 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 that, that kind of stuff. It might be before know. my time. I mean, I think it's before my time too. Although I do remember <laughs> seeing it on TV for the record, I and mean, this was like in the '60s, you know. Yeah, I, I, the I, I came in. Scene. I came in in the animated series where it was kind of like a. Uh, um, uh, gothic style. Uh, yeah, yeah. Then it'd be like da 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 da. Yes, that's the one. Soul Sisters. Meanwhile, across town, the Craze brothers are getting into their sweet atomic Cadillac when one of Doctor Dementia's goons sets off a bomb in their apartment building. The bros are safe, of course, but their mom was caught in the blast and killed. Later, we see the Soul Sisters pushing their way through the crowd after getting stuck in traffic, and they have time to see the handsome Pope Bob appear from his stratobat, and things seem okay, but then a flying, a dude in a personal helicopter with a gun called a Truth Vibrator flies overhead and blasts the Pope to death. Oh, jeez. Oh, no. The Pope. <laughs> Also, why is it called the truth vibrator? That also seems like they're making a joke that I don't understand. That's one I don't get. It seems like a big thing, I guess, but very strange. Like like everything with the Soul Sisters, I suppose. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's funny, just in a way I don't understand. Yeah, less funny ha-ha and more (laughs) funny huh, I guess. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So... As the Pope is assassinated, Dr. Delirium activates his mind control drug, Orgone 9. And I should say, Eli, that Orgone is a type of new agey pseudoscience energy, basically. Like, if folks out there have seen people wearing one of those, like, metal pyramid hats, they're trying to harness Orgone energy for various things. Um, we learned, that though, that it's not maybe actually a drug, but... In fact, some kind of nanodrones that infiltrate someone's brain and then turns them into a mindless sex-crazed zombie? That's the third worst kind of zombie. Right. <laughs> third worst. Right. Meanwhile, meanwhile Aunt Incipia is leading an assault on the news media, and she's replacing all of television with reruns of a show called Praise B. And usually when this stuff like this happens, Eli, and there's references to TV shows, I try to look up the show and kind of learn some stuff about it. Mm-hmm. But I had a, the devil's own time finding out about this show because when you look up Praise B and TV, you just get a lot of stuff about reality show, about like our religious shows, I should say. And then also I found just a bunch of articles of where the headline was, praise be, this TV show is now streaming or something like that. And it's like, oh, come on, guys. You're That's funny. 
taking up the space here from what I'm trying to learn about this weird English stuff. <laughs> anyway, through all this, what are the Soul Sisters doing? They're praying, reading their holy book, which seems to be some kind of Pope novel, when suddenly Pope Bob stands back up. He's alive! He explains that, yeah, definitely a miracle. He explains that after, or maybe just good planning, because he explains after Pope Bob the First met an untimely end, now they just have um, robot decoys go everywhere first, just to flush out assassins. And then the actual Pope comes, and that's what was destroyed: the Robo Pope. The sisters aren't quite buying it, though, so they grab the pontiff and head out. Meanwhile, on a rainy street, the Craze brothers are in their mother's funeral procession, cursing that Dr. Delirium. When they suddenly arrive, the municipal grave pits, only to find them full of zombies. And back at the Soul Cave, the sisters worry about that national frump taking over the city's news media, you know, just saying, oh, man, this is bad, but at least we got the Pope out the Pope out of danger when Bob II reveals the truth that he himself is the robot mm-hmm. Pope double. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. <laughs> Terrible. Next time on Soul Sisters, Blue Nuns. Now, do you think that there's just going to be a never-ending series of popes thinking that the Pope and the previous Pope was a robot, but there actually isn't? An actual pope? They're all robots. Probably, like I, I would not. Even today, I'm pretty sure that it's robot popes all the way down, Eli. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know, or it's one of these things. There's just doubles of doubles of doubles, and even all the doubles think they're the real ones, but they're that's just because that's what how good doubles they are, that they've been right. trained to think that they're the real one, when in fact they're also the double. Damn, and it's I like, but then who is the real one? And it's, right. you got to think about it, and it blows your mind, or whatever else. Yeah. And then um, now I'm wondering if I'm a double. Maybe I'm a double and I just think I'm the real Eli, you know. I mean, if you're there 70% of the time, I feel like eventually that just makes you the real Eli, you know. That's fair. Yeah, I'm doing the work. You're right. I deserve it. Yeah. Like, you know, at some point, like, you can't – like, if you're there most of the time and then something happens to you and the previous Eli comes swooping back in, that's just a – that's a whole different dude trying to – Trying to steal your your legwork, buddy. You right. know, you can't stand for that. Yeah. I feel like you put a lot of thought into this. I appreciate it. <laughs> Listen, whatever in the, the ins and outs of experience I've had dealing with doubles and doppelgangers and so forth, better not gotten into. All right? But if they know it's good for them, they'll back off. Okay? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> And speaking of backing off, let's take a quick break with Covers, Dreadlines, and the Mega News. So, uh, just all the non-story stuff for this episode. First, we're talking about issue five of volume two of the Judge Dredd magazine. Sean Phillips draws Devil and Wall, all tough on this cover. Thrills, pills, and chills. The... Editor says that letters are pouring in about the fortnightly, that most of our current thrills are on their way to conclusion, uh, Bad Man will end next episode, and everything else we're currently reading will end the episode after that. And the legal text says, pump and iron, because of the buff-ass Devlin Wall on the cover. Do you think they use model for that? That anatomy is just way too, like, too tight. They must have Maybe. Researched. 
I don't know Sean Phillips's technique for for drawing people and stuff, but it wouldn't surprise me just because I think you're right. Like the um, the the it, like Devlin was so intensely vascular in these images that there must be some like muscle man out there that's providing at least some, if not like direct tracing, like Brits it babes, at least like here's a look at like. Yeah, like like what a giant roided out dude would look like with right. like all of the um, huge veins in his arms right. and things like yeah. that, you yeah. know? Yeah, because what there's um there's fictional muscle. Like if you ever seen Dragon Ball Z, where you just kind of give everybody the buff outline. Yeah, or like uh, even um DC cartoons, they kind of just have that big chest arm thing. But uh, yeah, this guy is very detailed. They like there's trapezoids and deltoids and traparamas. You can tell I don't know what I'm talking about, but sure. <laughs> but I think we all, I think we all, whether we know what these are muscles are called or not, know what you're talking about. Just that he, like, yeah, there's a lot of anatomy in Devlin Waugh's buffness, as opposed to, yeah, just sort of a generic, like, like, yeah, it's the difference between someone who's actually muscular and say, like, when um, Hans and Franz in the Saturday Night Live just wears sweatsuits with with gems with gym socks stuff into him or whatever just to kind of give the right. appearance of some biceps or whatever right. <laughs> that's what i do you know I, I i gotta get the fake muscles basically right um it, it, it looks up in the mirror we're quarantined so i assume it's just all for self-esteem boosting like of course yeah in the mirror, all, for, like, Man. all for me definitely <laughs> it's a good look in the yeah, in the in the megaphiles, there's a news report about the assassination of Pope Bob II, and there's a two-page ad for the Judge Dread uh, yearbook. We're going to talk about that about this one a lot. The '93 Dread yearbook. We talk about that next episode, um, and it seems like the focus for this one is on Britsit, and we get a, a image of the cover where we see Britsit judges, floating judge robots, and things like that. The letters page dread lines is two pages long with writer with writers just doing again full write ups for reviewing these fortnightly thrills. And I guess I do appreciate that they have this mix of positive and negative things to say about the fortnightly, though they are definitely more charmed by Armageddon than I think we are. Mm. <laughs> and speaking of which, going into issue six. Armageddon now, as we see the bad man putting a gun down the throat of a dude in a gas mask's face outside the UN in a cover by Carlos Descara. In the front of the comic, the editorial mentions that this is the penultimate bad man and that next week the cover will be black in mourning for all the deaths of Judgment Day. The legal text says dead again. And after judgment, after the uh, judgment, after the uh, dread story judgment day, there's a preview, just so, like some images and stuff of the upcoming dread storyline mechanismo, which will be starting in issue twelve. And this tale of robot judges coming to um, both help and cause problems for Judge Dredd will have reverberations even to this very day. Later in the Megaphiles, there's a feature on the history of Judge Anderson. He'll be showing up in the magazine soon, as well as more previews of the 93 Dredd yearbook. 
There's another two pages of dread lines. Um, there's letters praising the artist Chris Halls and asking for more Anderson. Uh, harsh letter says the magazine, like, both insults Chris Halls and then says the magazine lacks cohesive appeal and not enough judges. Another writer who's from Japan says the fortnightly's shaping up. And there's more wonders about more question about like what the continuity of the current magazine is. And finally, one last letter talking about how, oh, you said that Israel in Armageddon that Israel will be fighting Marxist forces. But I think if you look at the writings of Marx, you'll find that neither the Soviet Union nor the people nor China actually follows through on those beliefs. And it's like, OK, buddy, you know what I mean. Come on, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, the comic ends with something I thought was kind of interesting, which was an ad for Forbidden Planet Mail Order, which is a a comic like a, a a chain of comic book shops in the UK. And this mail order list just has a whole bunch of uh, 2000 AD and 2000 AD related titles and prices for all of those um, comics. So you can kind of see that like really early 2000 AD is worth like a couple pounds and stuff like that. It's kind of interesting to see how these things have appreciated. I also noticed that there's a listing for um, the action history of a violent comic um, book, which is about the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the canceled comic actions sort of pre-2000 AD. That's a really um, great publication. Yeah, but it's just fun to see these different things written. And then after that, there's an, a full-color ad for the Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren Universal Soldier movie. Oh, man. <laughs> Cyborg action, etc. Sorry, were you going to say something about the Forbidden Planet ad, Eli? I'm sorry to cut you off. Oh, no. No, I was just – I was quiet for a long time. So I feel like I should, I should oh, no. confirm that I exist. I appreciate you um, checking in that you haven't been eaten by zombies or vampires or something. A lot of hordes hanging out in the pages of the magazine these days, actually. Yeah, it's good that they incorporated two different apocalypses, the the zombie and the robot apocalypse. Right. Well, you know, we're recording these a little out of sync, but I'll mention that there's a zombie apocalypse going on in both Soul Sisters and Judge Dredd right now. A lot of zombie apocalypses. And meanwhile, we've got a zombie-esque vampire apocalypse going on in Story 3, Devil in (laughs) Script robot John Smith, art robot Sean Phillips, lighting robot Steve Potter. Okay, so... We've got a couple guards and medical staff, as well as Devlin Waugh, and they're the only survivors of a vampire outbreak at the underwater prison of Aquatraz in the Bahamas in, um, you know, the world of Judge Dredd or whatever. Last time we saw a vampire escape through a broken window of the facility, and now the bulkheads are coming down to seal the entire area, which doesn't seem good. Meanwhile, that escaped vampire is being picked up by Justice Department subs. They clearly aren't taking any chances, so they open fire on the vamp, blowing a hole in his chest, and then letting the sharks do the work. You're going to make vampire sharks? Oh, no. No, that's not that's not clear, but you know it could be right. Uh, <laughs> the ultimate predator. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. The, like ghost hook jaws got nothing on vampire hook jaw. Shout out to everybody else. <laughs> Meanwhile, vampire boss Landis has been challenged by up and comer keys, 
And the two of them are fighting, and that's reaching its conclusion as Landis, last episode, morphed into a huge vampire monster. Now he's crushing keys to paste. At the same time, Warden Meacham's clearly going crazy in his uh, hermetically sealed apartment. And Devin Waugh's getting mad because all of his various Ponzi knickknacks have been destroyed by the sea and various other sort of elements within the prison here. My watercolors! The others are trying to find a way out of the prison, but meanwhile, Devlin is just um, deep in a temper tantrum and won't leave until everybody personally apologizes to him for what's happened. <laughs> He's such a prima donna, Eli. It's really, it's really tough. Right. Um, Hard to work with. Yeah. Back in Vampire Town, Landis has returned to regular human form, standing around all naked and sexy and whatnot, preparing to initiate the three deadliest men in prison into his inner vampire circle. Meanwhile, at the prison armory, the guards are getting spook guns, which fire razor-sharp shrapnel and sun lamps, as one nurse um, asks why they don't, don't just try to escape. And one of the doctors says that um, they're under quarantine right now, so if they try to escape, they'll get blasted away. But Devlin hears this and won't countenance any of this negative talk. Suggests they just have a big group hug instead to be more positive about things, which I appreciate. Pro-group hug in the stressful situation. Um, Landis has fed the three criminals his blood, making them super vampires. And now it's time to finish out this mission he's got. First on his list, killing Warden Meacham. So this takes us to Meacham himself working out in his hermetically sealed room. But he feels a migraine coming on. So he goes to get some medication and opens his medicine cabinet. When he does, he sees something shocking. Like it seems like something cut his finger, but I'm not clear about what's going on there. Meanwhile, Devlin and the guards are having trouble finding a way out of the prison. Their only hope is through the animal house, which is where they keep all the prisoners with genetic disorders and, deform you know, the mutants and stuff. Um, Devlin, hearing this, takes solace in the fact that he isn't a freak, which is messed up, bro. <laughs> right. <laughs> And as this is happening, Warden Meacham sees that a cockroach has entered his sealed quarters. And we see then Landis, who we know has cockroach powers from earlier in the story. He's, like, reaching through the walls of the prison. And the other, like, big killers that he's made his top vampire lieutenants are sort of touching his arm and lending him vampire power, I guess? Um, and that eventually leads to him commanding the roaches and suddenly just a huge fountain of them come shooting out of Meacham's sink drain. And that's my nightmare. Don't care for it at all, Eli. Not at all. <laughs> Meanwhile, our crew of friends is making their way through these tunnels. Devlin saying that he and his brother were brought up to have a healthy disinterest in other humans. Uh, Especially women. And we learned that his brother, Freddy Waugh, disappeared while skiing on Mount Kilimanjaro eight years ago. So I guess put a pin in that. Um, right. They arrive at... Yeah, listen, who knows? They arrive at the chain... Yeah, certainly for... Just, you know, laying some seeds for future stories or something like that. That's how you do it. That's how you tell stories. <laughs> I've been told. Right. Um... 
They arrive at the Chamber of Horrors as bugs swarm over Micho, and we see that at least one of his eyes has been eaten and stuff. He's killed. As we see news reports continuing about the prison, they're theorizing cannibalism inside the walls. And they also announce that Devlin was on the case. They do some background on him. He's famous for the penny farthing murders and was disqualified from competing with the Olympics for massive steroid use, which is kind of funny. Um, I mentioned that it seems like there's some channel surfing going on as this news report is going because it sort of jumps from background on Devlin Waugh to like the afternoon movie, which is about vampires as well. So just sort of, I don't know, creating this scene of a vampire-y situation, I guess. Um, the animal house, as they call it, is dark and scary. The crew make their way over a grate as strange, unusual hands reach up from it. Like some of them have like way too many fingers and stuff like that. Murray... The exterminator tries to help the people, like, open up the grate and let them out. And we see down below a bunch of weird and deformed humans. I got a lot of extra limbs growing out of their bodies and faces that are all messed up and stuff like that. You know, sort of chamber of horrors kind of thing. They did a great job on that scene. Yeah, I was thoroughly grossed out. Yeah, Sean Phillips definitely drawn these folks to be scary. Um, the guards pull guns on Murray to make him stop trying to open the grates. And outside the prison, we see a submarine captain talking to the Bahamas chief judge. They say they got to assume everybody in the prison is infected now, so the sailors should be prepared to kill anything that leaves the prison. Our crew finally makes it through the animal house to the isolation block. Um, and when they arrive there, it's pretty bad. There's waist-high water full of dead bodies. And it seems like under that water, one of the chief vampires looks on. They're here, just like Landis said. The meat at the end of the rainbow. Everyone knows that's how, that's how rainbows work. Yeah, there's always meat at the that's end. That's right. Of yeah, that's what... Um, that's what Judy Garland was talking about somewhere over the rainbow, yeah, like a right. butcher's shop. <laughs> yeah. The luck, if you ever had Lucky Charms, you know. You know what they're talking about. Oh, yeah. Next time on Devil and Wah, deep water. All right. Crazy like stuff going on there. Lots of vampires. I feel like your puns are so much better than mine. For some reason, me going cereal and you going music, music just speaks so much more to the soul, I think. I tip my hmm. hat to you. Maybe. I mean, I'm just playing off the over the rainbow thing. Listen, you know, <laughs> like, don't give me credit till I actually sing the song and move oh, okay. in some, move in some meat words, you know? <laughs> that's, that's a higher degree of difficulty, you know? Yes. I do it, but now I've talked about it, so it sort of right. it seems unnecessary. Right, absolutely. Imagine I did. Yeah. Okay. I'll assign you that credit. Absolutely. And hey, speaking of uh, strange powers used for both good and evil, Eli, mm -hmm. let's talk about story four, Armageddon, the bad man. Script robot Alan Grant, art robot Carlos Scare, letting robot Gordon Robson. All right. So last time, this lady, Lori, she met this green dude with a giant head, Mekon <laughs> dude, I'm calling it. And was, um, they sort of decided to join mines and things. She's, you know, again, going to full total recall here, open your mind, etc. 
As she communicates with him, she sees images of the end of the world, signs and portents, both man-made and natural, mark the human race for its own destruction. The green dude says only those whose minds are in tune with a higher vibration will survive the coming apocalypse. And he and others like him are trying to set up networks to protect those people, and the bad man is trying to stop them from doing so. And of course, he naturally says that Lori's one of those higher vibration people, um, if she manages to find her power, of course. Um, afterwards, um, Condro and the tall dude come in and show Lori to food and rest while she thinks over what's happening. She sleeps as a bunch of army dudes set up roadblocks around, um, New York's, around sort of New York City. A car comes towards them, hitting one soldier and smashing through the roadblock. The soldiers call in an airstrike, and as a chopper shoots up the vehicle, the bad man who is driving in it sneakily dodges out of a side door and disappears into the sewers like a common hero. Lots of sewer work in 2000 AD, Eli. That's a yeah. FYI, I guess. Um, <laughs> the, sol- the car crashes into a wall and the soldiers assume the driver must be dead not checking to see that like there's actually nobody in the car or whatever but you know whatever um, as we also see a report from the agency listing a couple of scientific Armageddon scenarios including a pole shift a great storm caused by the procession of the equinoxes uh, Ted planet heading into the solar system and messing with Earth's, Earth's, Earth's gravity, or just some plain old nukes. And they theorize <laughs> that at least one of these happening before is what destroyed Atlantis and Lemuria and these other sort of ancient, um, made-up civilizations. You know what I'm talking about. I love when they tie those in. <laughs> Gotta, you know. Like, listen, of course this happened before. The proof is that Atlantis isn't around anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's convincing for sure. <laughs> Lori dreams of world leaders bearing their flags and marching off the side of a cliff. She wakes up screaming and knows the bad man is going to attack this UN summit meeting that's about to happen. She says they have to warn them, but Condro says it's no use. But Lori won't hear that. They, um, if they won't warn the UN, she will. All right. So I guess maybe the next day or later that night or something. It's still pretty dark out. Right. We're at the UN building. It's surrounded by tanks and soldiers and helicopters overhead. We learn there's no weapons of any kind allowed in the council chamber. We see a reporter being stopped outside. No press, no reporters, no cameras. And then we see the tall, the, the tall and the short guy, that's tall guy and Condro, discussing Lori leaving. She must understand the reality of the situation or die trying. At the military cordon, she's stopped by troops and tries to warn them of the coming danger, but gets laughed at when she admits that she thinks there's danger because she saw it in a dream. You know, not that convincing for sure. Right. <laughs> Inside the UN, the rep from the USA is tr- is talking about peace and cooperation when suddenly a green gas comes through the air vents. Sacre bleu! Nerve gas! 
<laughs> the diplomats run to escape. We see a bunch of them dying, but some of the survivors pulling on gas masks. When outside, an alarm goes up and the soldiers run to help. As Lori herself goes someplace, pulls up a manhole cover and heads to the sewers herself. The escaping diplomats wonder what happened. I mean, the agency set up security. What happened? When suddenly they run headlong into the bad man with his pistol drawn. The agency! Oh, no! <laughs> and next time on the final episode of Armageddon, the bad man, Eli. The end. <laughs> All right. It's exciting stuff, I guess. You know. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of setup that's not going to go a ton of places, but still kind right. of interesting. Right. It's exciting to see, oddly enough. Yeah. And with all that said, Eli, I must know, what were your top and bottom stories for these issues five and six of the Judge Dread magazine? And I should say that, again, we're recording all the Judgment Day stuff separately, so we're just looking at... um. Soul Sisters, Devlin and Wah, and Armageddon for um, our top and bottom this time. Right. I put Soul Sisters on the bottom pretty easy. Because um, mm-hmm. they're just not... Uh, nothing's happening. Like, it's like a lot of little things, but like, besides the, you know, Pope, endless army of Pope robots and the zombie apocalypse, yeah. I still think they're biting off more than they can chew. So I'm just... <laughs> they weren't able to get me invested because I'm just not buying it yet. I am yeah, so fair. I'm so hoping they prove me wrong and that it just all comes together and it's all amazing and then, you know, they just skyrocket to the top. But uh there's so much you can do. Um Hey, it's good to hold out hope for sure. Right. Um I also wanna uh my uh top's going to be um uh, uh Armageddon, uh uh the bad man. Uh I think uh, a lot of it has to do with how um a big of a prima donna, uh the main character from uh it's not Armitage. Um, uh, uh, oh, uh, how, uh, how, uh, how, uh, Devlin was a big prima donna and yes. like, you know, Modi about everything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, uh, like getting upset at him. Like, come on, man. Which people are, they're dying. There's roaches, yeah. person out of sinks. There's vampires. Um, yeah. Take it seriously for a minute, buddy. Right, come right. on. But I mean, honestly, I think if he, if he turns out just to be a badass or some type of redeeming element, then I think I'll like him significantly more. I feel like they're uh, painting him in these negative lights to subvert expectations later to make it like, no, he is awesome, though. And then, like, yeah, okay. I mean, yeah, I mean, honestly, I kind of agree with you, although I really do think that while there was kind of a pretty sweet, like a cool opening for Devlin Wah, they're really taking a lot of runway to have the have the plane of his badassery take <laughs> off if you if you if you understand my metaphor oh, here yes. yeah, I'm following the analogy it's good <laughs> because there's like cuz I'll tell you like uh, Armageddon ends next episode and all the rest of these stories have 3 episodes left so mm. everything else is 3 episodes left so like if it's gonna if they're gonna get crazy now is the time right. to do it yeah. you know like I'm like tapping my watch a little <laughs> bit <laughs> right. if he does um, anything short of just punching the vampire to death then uh, I might feel uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, unsatisfied so exactly yeah I think I'll agree with you in t- I, I think I'll have solidarity with you for my tops and bottoms um, put soul sisters on the bottom I'll put um, Armageddon on the top I don't know if Armageddon is that great, but I'll tell you, Eli, writing the 
writing the recaps for these story for the these magazines has been a chore because even though I'm reading these pretty close, there are points where I'm really struggling to figure out what the heck is going on <laughs> in both Soul Sisters and Devlin Wah. Like right. the, these are just these are overly complex stories. Or they're just jumping around and doing a lot of, like, really unnecessarily complex storytelling thingamajigs. Like, I said this last episode, and I'll say it again. I just don't think Soul Sisters needs three different bad guy factions mixed together, you know? Yeah. They're just trying to cram everything in there. Uh, Yeah, and then, like you said, I definitely agree that... What we've seen of Devlin Waugh does not justify his attitude in how he's approaching this stressful situation, you know? (laughs) Like, it's simply, like, you know, if I'd seen a previous adventure where you handled stuff, then this blasé-ness I feel like I could laugh along with. But right now, I'm more like, you know, like the few, like the, like, you know, wake up and smell the coffee, buddy. Like this is, you know, the future is now. We got to do something or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. So, but yeah, I'm hoping that at least Evelyn Waugh, um, sort of takes off and is able to justify, um, my hopes for it a little bit more. Right. Um, that would be nice. You know, I would like things to be good, Eli. That's my general feeling about things. Yeah. Um. <laughs> also, they also me loving the art is also putting extra target on its back. I'm like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I really like Sean Phillips too. And so I feel like this store, like it feels like his art's doing way more work than it really should have to. <laughs> to, um, to say, but yes. <laughs> yeah. To like, put this story together and make things coherent and stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So let's see how it goes. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. As always, you can find Big Meg One on iTunes, Stitch, or the Google Play Store, Spotify, or our podcast site at BigMegOne.com. Feel free to contact us at BigMegOne at gmail.com in the 2080 forums or on our Facebook or Twitter pages. For those, check out Big Meg One, O-N-E, written out, and you'll find us there. The show is brought to you by Steve Green, Zane Kip Miller, and your friends in the 2080 forums. If you'd like to join them and help support the show, we'd appreciate it. Please check out our patreon at patreon.com slash that's our podcast network there you can support the show and receive a ton of excellent rewards including advanced episodes coverage of modern 2000 ad in the magazine and even monthly q a's with fox from space spinner and myself then come back next time as we'll reach the end of armageddon and start a fancy new judge anderson story and everything else just keeps rolling on we're gonna get more judgment day soul sisters and devil Will they get better? Hey, we'll find out. So until then, I'm Shade, excuse me. But until then, I'm Conrad there, Eli, and we are Big Mac One. Drop.